Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. to experience is one man's quest to see beyond the tumultuous period we're in and to envision what lies just beyond our grasp yet well within our reach welcome to larry rifkin's america trends where the future has arrived and it's just in time Welcome back to America Trends. I'm Larry Rifkin. It's a most perplexing economic moment. Jobs abound. Wages have risen a bit to meet the demands of a tight labor market. But inflation still roars, requiring dramatic interest rate hikes by the Fed. This, in turn, puts downward pressures on the stock market. So where do you invest or park your money? Some have taken a bet on the future of cryptocurrency. The shiny new toy, well, it's had a few dings lately in the field of finance. Will it prove skeptics wrong who've been late to the digital dance before? We'll talk to a heavily credentialed one next here on America Trends. With us on America Trends is Lee Reiners. He is the policy director of the Duke Financial Economic Center and uh, a lecturing fellow dealing with the issue of cryptocurrency. And that's why we have him here. Because I've got to tell you, um, Mr. Reiners, people really don't understand whenever you mention cryptocurrency. To most of us out here, it is, I don't know, some kind of illusory thing. What is cryptocurrency, just to start off with? I think you're right uh, in that most people have heard of cryptocurrency by now, but very few people have uh, any understanding of what it is. You know, really at its core, you know, cryptocurrency is in essence uh, software. Uh, it's a, a distributed database, and what that database is tracking is who holds what uh, are various digital assets. And so in the case of Bitcoin, that was the very first, cryptocurrency it's still the most uh, popular and you know what it is is a, a decentralized peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, way to send value and that value again is in the form of you know Bitcoin but the technology that uh, powers cryptocurrency blockchain could be a database that represents you know any type of value it can represent you know stocks uh, mm -hmm. obviously I think things like non-fungible tokens that can represent you know, unique digital images. So that's really what what cryptocurrency is. Now, you know, it has the the word currency, of course, in its title, and that's a bit of a misnomer um, because it's really not and hasn't been used as a currency. You know, economists like to say that money or currency 
fulfills three functions. First, it's a medium of exchange, meaning you can use it to buy and sell goods and services. Second, it's a store of value, meaning you feel comfortable kind of keeping your wealth in that unit of, of currency, and it'll maintain its value over time. And finally, it's a unit of account, meaning that you can compare the relative value of various goods and services in that, that currency. When we look at crypto, it's really not fulfilling any of those three functions. And, you know, what we have is an entirely speculative asset class where people uh, are attracted to crypto and have been buying crypto really for no other reason than they think they can sell it to someone else at a higher price in the future. Now, of course, you know, that's kind of the definition of a of an asset bubble. You know, eventually the supply of what, what we call greater fools, the greater fool theory, meaning that, you know, there'll always be another greater fool showing up to buy it <laughs> at that higher price. You know, that supply um, eventually runs out. And that's really kind of the situation we're in now with cryptocurrency. And so, you know, when we look ahead to the future of crypto, I mean, it's looking pretty bleak from my vantage point because we still haven't seen, and, you know, keep in mind, you know, Bitcoin first came into the world in 2009. So, you know, we're 14 years into this experiment and we still mm -hmm. haven't seen that, that so-called killer use case, right? The, the thing that people are, you know, flocking to use cryptocurrency for. And so it's not providing any genuine economic utility. And at the end of the day, that's what it takes for any asset class to have value over the long term. It has to do something. It has to provide some utility beyond just being a means of speculation. So, of course, there are plenty of people who, who disagree with me and say it's still early stages and the blockchain technology has, you know, potential. You know, but I, I disagree. I think 14 years is a lot of time, certainly when you're looking at it from a technology standpoint. New technologies tend to prove themselves pretty quickly. I mean, by way of comparison, the iPhone was introduced in 2007, mm. right? And we, I think anyone who held the iPhone or a smartphone in their hands for the first time understood, right, the revolutionary potential here, that this was a game changer, uh, you know, again, we just haven't seen anything like that with, with crypto. And so if it hasn't happened yet, you have to ask yourself, when will it happen? <laughs> when? Well, let me ask you about that. I mean, let's start with the fact that I don't own any cryptocurrency. And, in fact, I was on with a financial advisor earlier today, and I was kidding. I want to go into crypto. And we all laughed, and we moved along. And that's like saying I want to go into pewter or uh, copper or brass yeah. or something. But – if I wanted to buy crypto today, where would I buy it? I mean, we obviously saw the demise of an exchange, and yeah. that was uh, tied up in, in lots of chicanery. But, I mean, what do I put in? Do I put in a dollar, and then who assesses? Say, for example, I go to Europe, and I want to trade a dollar for a euro. I mean, there is an open market of exchange. How do I even know that if I'm giving a dollar to someone and I'm getting a Bitcoin back, who is ascribing the value to the Bitcoin? There's a lot of ironies when it comes to cryptocurrency. And to me, the biggest is that, you know, it was a technology that was premised on disintermediating legacy financial institutions, right? The foundational... Right premise of crypto, of Bitcoin, was the ability to, to transact peer-to-peer -peer without the need for any 
intermediaries, right? So you could cut out the middleman, and we all know, you know, middleman, they charge <laughs> the piece. They charge, yeah, they take the piece, right? I mean, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, they're not doing this for charity. And so that's the, that's the, the promise, and that's what attracted in the early days, at least, a lot of people to, to crypto. Now, the reality, of course, is very, very different. The reality is, is that most people are buying and selling cryptocurrency through intermediaries. Right through right. Um, cryptocurrency exchanges, and so when we take a step back, you know, all we've done is replaced kind of one set of intermediaries, you know, regulated banks, namely, and other regulated financial institutions, with a new set of intermediaries who are lightly regulated and in many cases not regulated at all. And we're seeing the consequences of that, you know, play out right now as we speak uh, in the wake of the FTX collapse. So. But back to your your question, Larry. So there are various you know companies out there, and they call themselves cryptocurrency exchanges. And even the use of the exchange can be a bit of a misnomer, and it's intentional, right? Because they want you, the user, to think that you know these are services that are just as respectable and reputable as you know the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq, right? And of course, you know those entities are regulated where these crypto exchanges aren't. But nonetheless, they call themselves cryptocurrency exchanges. FTX was one of them. You know, there are others in the U.S. Uh, Gemini, which is run by uh, the Winklevoss twins, you know, famous from the Facebook story. And, you know, you connect it to your to your bank account. I mean, this, these services, when you use them, these exchanges, they look very similar in the user interface standpoint from, you know, Charles Schwab or, you know, E-Trade or Robinhood. So you go in, you enter your, your information. They're going to do identity checks, things like that. And then you connect your bank account. You can upload dollars, and then from there you're able to to trade, uh, buy and sell cryptocurrency. So that's that's generally how uh, how it works. Mm. But again, you know, I, I would caution listeners that you know these services uh, are not regulated in the way that you know legacy financial institutions are regulated. So it's it's, it's definitely a buyer beware situation. But it's really not that hard to to get cryptocurrency these days. Okay, well, if you are so inclined. Uh, you say that Bitcoin is too volatile as a legal tender, and you also say that there's no economic utility uh, to crypto. Uh, why would I want to get out of stocks, bonds, gold, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever, trading cards, you know, baseball? Why would I want to get out of those things right now to go into cryptocurrency? Well, I, I don't know because I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> I, I I certainly wouldn't do. But it a lot myself. of smart people have. A lot of smart well, people. Well, a have. lot. Of, well, um, yeah. I mean, smart people can can make you know bad decisions <laughs> for sure. <laughs> There's a lot of things that have fueled the rise of cryptocurrency over the the past you know decade plus. I mean. One, keep in mind, you know, I, I said Bitcoin was introduced in 2009, right? This was in the midst of the global financial crisis. And in fact, the very first Bitcoin transaction included a reference to a, uh, a UK newspaper article about bank bailouts in, mm. the, U, in the UK. So, you know, this was this came of, of being at a time when trust and Traditional financial institutions was at an all-time low, and you know, and that trust still hasn't recovered. So, you know, a lot of people were attracted initially to cryptocurrency, right? It's sort of an anecdote to the evils of the big bank that we all saw too clearly uh, in 2008 and you know 2009, and that you know, and that kind of ethos, that libertarian ethos, still prevails. 
you know, but once it started to go up in price a little bit, you know, then it attracted, you know, the speculators. You know, this was the first Bitcoin bull market run in 2017. It started, the, you know, the year 2017 at a little over $1,000. It ended 2017 at around $20,000. And that was the first time that many people probably heard of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. And you were seeing these stories all over the place. You know, college student drops out, travels the world on, you know, Bitcoin profits or something like that. And, of course, what that does is it builds FOMO, fear of missing out, and it brings other people in, right? And and so that's what kind of sustained the initial momentum there. Now, that was unsustainable and eventually peaked at $20,000, as I said, in, in uh, December 2017. It came down quite steeply, uh, and that ushered in what became known as uh, the crypto winner, the first crypto winner. And that first crypto winner really lasted until the onset of the pandemic, uh, and then you kind of had this other sort of, you know, perfect confluence of events uh, that propelled crypto uh, to, to even new heights. Uh, one is we were all at home, uh, bored and looking for something to do. Right. And so and so uh, and so, you know, a lot of people just kind of gravitated to, to crypto and then sort of experimented, you know, to you know, the federal government passed multiple rounds of you know fiscal stimulus. So many people got you know, direct checks, um, and with that money, many were, you know, let's say, mm-hmm. let's, uh, you know, let's speculate a little in, yeah. in cryptocurrency. And, of course, you saw that dynamic play out in other contexts as well, if you remember the uh, the meme stocks, remember the rally in GameStop or mm-hmm. AMC. Um, you know, so that was kind of the same dynamic. People at home, bored, you know, flush with stimulus. And there was a communal element to it as well. I mean, people – you know, we're buying GameStop because somehow they were, you know, thought they were sticking it to the, the hedge funds who were, you know, shorting GameStop. Same thing with crypto. People thought you were, you know, if you buy crypto, it was a, you know, you're sticking it to the big banks somehow. You know, and then also, you know, people were worried about the Federal Reserve's response to the, the pandemic, you know, by increasing the money supply. And there was this belief for a long time in crypto, especially around Bitcoin, that it was going to be an inflation hedge because by the terms of the code, Bitcoin's core code, mm-hmm. there will only be 21 million coins ever be ever put into circulation. So there's a fixed supply, just like there's a fixed supply of gold. Mm-hmm. And just like gold is an inflation hedge, therefore, Bitcoin must be an inflation hedge. And so a lot of people were worried about, you know, all this excess money be, being put into the economy that, that would you know, contribute to inflation, which it, it obviously has, we know now. But as it turns out, right, Bitcoin and crypto is not a good inflation hedge because the moment inflation reared its ugly head, crypto prices plummeted. So that kind of thesis has been been blown out of the water. But nonetheless, a lot of people believe it. So those are the things that that really kind of fueled over the past, uh, you know, three years at this point, almost three years, fueled the the run up in, in crypto prices. But again, all of that was untethered from any economic use cases. You know, maybe there's a piece of this that deals with the populism, which now is beginning to ebb in terms of governments around the world. The whole idea, I don't trust, you know, this uh, institution. You mentioned the banks, uh, governments in terms of uh, the way they were spending. And you said that cryptocurrency, you wrote a, a really wonderful piece, and I want to get into it a bit cryptocurrency in the state, an unholy alliance. And you remind us, I know it's a simple thing to remember, but historically governments have demonstrated their power by monopolizing the creation of money, which in turn further legitimized the government's authority. So 
a lot of people out here who don't like government who might have gotten into this saying, I can end around. I don't really even need the government for my money supply. So tell us again what the role of government is in all of this, particularly at a moment when you see fraudsters, uh, you know, who are masquerading as legitimate exchanges, like in the case of uh, Bankman Freed, and the fact that there's going to need to be some checks and balances, uh, even on this emerging, if you will, uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, so there's, there's just a, a lot of basic, fundamental, economic, and political concepts that supporters of cryptocurrency either overlook or just don't understand. And we've we've learned these lessons repeatedly over time. And I guess now's a, another case where we're being forced or others are being forced to, to, to learn them yet again. You know, we've had private currencies before. So this is not new in the sense that we've never seen private currencies. You, know, you go back to the period before the Civil War, uh, what's known as the wildcat banking era. You know, that was a time when currency was issued by banks. And, you know, there was unit banks, so most banks existed only as one branch and, you know, in one physical location, and they issued their own currency. And you can imagine how chaotic that was because it meant that, you know, once I traveled outside of, you know, the town where my bank was located, and try to, you know, buy something with that bank-issued currency, you know, the seller who would never have heard of that bank would then, you know, discount that, the face value of that bill, right? It was just a very inefficient way to conduct commerce. And so when the Civil War came, you know, President Lincoln recognized that this was a problem, that they needed a better way to fund the war. And so he created a national currency, the greenback. We've sort of since taken it taken it for granted, but it was a really just prior to that like chaotic time. So so government so government is critical to sustaining currencies. It's it's really at the core of what it means to be a sovereign nation is to have your own currency, uh, a monopoly over that currency, just like you know uh, having a standing army, having you know borders, right? Those are all elements of what it means to be a currency. And why government currencies are so successful is because we all share, everyone who lives within a, a nation shares a common creditor, right? We all have to pay taxes to the government. And so, therefore, whatever the government accepts for those taxes becomes the currency that freely circulates throughout the economy. So, you know, to make it, you know, really simple for folks, you know, imagine it's kind of, you know, ancient times. We live in a in a village, a small village, I'm a I'm a butcher, you're a blacksmith, okay, and I need a pot, right? I need a pot for a feast. And uh and you and and so you could say, okay, well, I'll take, you know, you know, one pig, two pig, whatever, whatever you, you whatever you ask. And we can negotiate that, so that's barter. Of course that's very inefficient, but again, remember it's a small village. You know me, right? You know that I'm I'm good for you know, I'm a man of my word. And so rather than barter for a pig, I could just issue you an IOU, right? And I could mm-hmm. say, okay, you know, I owe Larry something that's of equivalent value to one to one pot. And I could then maybe spend that, or you could then, once you have that IOU, could spend it in the village because, again, everyone knows me, knows I'm a man of my word. But, of course, once you travel outside of that village and try to redeem that IOU, people are going to laugh at you because they've never heard of me. They have nothing, you know, they have no mm-hmm. knowledge of, 
of my creditworthiness, right? So enter the government. Because again, that government IOU, and that's what money really is, it's a, you know, these are debt instruments, right? It's a legal tender, it's an obligation of uh, the Federal Reserve in the, in the U.S. context. Uh, so the government then can issue currency, and we all have to pay that currency back to the government. We have common creditors. So that's why government money has been so successful. Uh, and, you know, attempts at private money have always been dismal failures, cryptocurrency included. Well, you say that cryptocurrency doesn't fit neatly within the credit theory of money because there is no underlying debtor. When you spend a Bitcoin, whose obligation does this represent? Bitcoins are not issued. They are created using computer code, and they exist as computer code. Is this where we're trying to get so clever? We've got so many means today of distributing money. But underlying that is still, you know, that legal tender that you talk about. So we can Venmo, we can PayPal, we can use Apple Pay. In other words, is this an extension just one leg too far from where we're going using digital means but still having legal tender underpinning it? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, so obviously money is already digital, right? I, You know, I don't know about you, but I don't carry a lot of cash in my wallet anymore mm-hmm. right i'm generally i'm generally using my credit cards my debit card you know venmo paypal right so money is all, for most of us money is already digital but that money is still denominated in dollars right in fiat currency very different situation than we have with cryptocurrency right again it's no one's as you said it's no one's legal obligation and you know all you know financial assets are someone else's liability right if it generates a return that return has to come from somewhere right so even if we don't even if we say okay maybe crypto is not money maybe it's just, you know something else like a, a financial asset you know think of a, of a bond right you know bonds pay interest someone has to pay that interest right think of stocks Okay, that's a, you know, that represents an ownership interest, right, in a company. And that company generates profits and it pays those profits, you know, back to shareholders in the form of dividends or maybe it engages in share repurchases. With crypto, there's no company that's doing that, right? So again, you know, these are just digital files that a lot of people have convinced themselves somehow should be worth something. And why is that? Well, because someone else thinks it's worth something. And, you know, so so this is why narrative is so important when it comes to cryptocurrency and why social media plays such a big role, because it allows true believers to kind of spread the narrative and draw in more folks and kind of create this, this core group of, you know, hardcore believers. And so, you know, Elon Musk tweets out something that's, you know, pro crypto, and the you know the price goes up. He tweets out something that's you know anti crypto, the the price goes down. I mean, we've seen it time and time and again that it's really sentiment that's what's driving crypto. Mm. But sentiment sentiment is very very you know fickle. I mean, we obviously all have various opinions about government and the state of our country and you know fiscal policy and, and things like that. But 
very few of us then kind of take those opinions or disagreements and say, oh, well, that means the dollar's somehow no longer any good, right? And this is one of my kind of critiques of, of crypto is that, you know, it's sort of a rebuke of democracy, you know, of our uh, federal, you know, of our, our government. And, and it's, you know, we, we need to kind of lean in, I think, at this point to our, our institution. Lee Reiners is with us, policy director of the Duke Financial Economic Center and a lecturing fellow there. And, you know, you say it so well in this piece. If there is no issuer, then who or what are Bitcoin users trusting? And then a lot of people trust the underlying, uh, I don't know, it seems, uh, you know, fanciful and uh, maybe magical, but it's just like because this blockchain technology as this open ledger is so interesting but but it has no value itself i mean it, it seems like a great technology and i think you said at the beginning you can use it for lots of things and the fact that it's open i don't know that's supposed to give us some comfort open for what open to what well we're still waiting to figure out you know what exactly are, are those blockchain use cases going to be i mean the technology is super super interesting right but that doesn't necessarily mean it's useful so what it allows what blockchain fundamentally allows it allows you to trust the contents of a ledger, right, of, of stored information on a database without having to trust any users of that ledger or really anyone, right? And that's mm. kind of the, you know, the quote that you read from my article, what I was referencing there. And, and some people call this, you know, trustless trust or, or blockchain trust. And so, you know, through a combination, I won't get into all the details, but through a combination, of course, cryptography and computer science, but then some pretty clever incentive mechanisms too. You know, blockchain, again, allows people to believe and have confidence, right, in the canonical state of a given ledger without having to trust anyone on there. So that might be useful in certain circumstances, but it comes with tremendous trade-offs that in most cases make blockchain technology inferior to existing traditional database technology, like an Oracle database. And so what are those trade-offs? Well, one is it's very slow um, because you have to achieve that consensus, right? And this is where things like, you know, mining, if you're at a Bitcoin mining, come into to play, right? And mining is the process by which uh, that consensus is achieved. And in Bitcoin's case, it's very energy inefficient, you have, you know, all these computers competing to try to solve this complex math problem that just requires a tremendous amount of energy. Most of that energy is coming from fossil fuel sources, unfortunately. And that takes time, so it's not a very fast way to update a database. As I mentioned, it's energy inefficient. Um, it doesn't process the same amount of transactions as a traditional database. I mean, the Visa or MasterCard network, for instance, process, <laughs> processes transactions orders of magnitude faster than mm. the Bitcoin than the Bitcoin blockchain. So then, why is this better, right? Well, really, that's the only thing that's better at is decentralization. Right, and if decentralization and decentralization means censorship resistant, there's no entity that controls the ledger that can change entries on the ledger. And so, who values that? Well, for the most part, it's people who want to do bad things. And this is and this is why crypto 
it's, you know, its biggest use case uh, beyond just gambling and speculation is people who want to do bad things like ransomware attackers. Folks remember the, co- the Colonial Pipeline hack a few years mm-hmm. ago, which shut down the you know, gasoline supply here in the southeast U.S. for you know, almost a week. Well, guess what? You know, those hackers, they demand a payment in crypto and every ransomware attack demands payment in crypto. And at this point, you know, there are very few businesses and municipalities and healthcare systems that haven't been impacted by ransomware. Again, Bitcoin is the exclusive payment mechanism of choice. You know, drug dealers, you know, others who people who want to bypass U.S. financial sanctions, mm-hmm. you know, again, crypto is appealing to them because of that decentralized and anonymous nature of the of the blockchain. But for the rest of us, you know, give us the speed, give us the efficiency. And this is why I just think long term, even when we take look, you know, abstract away from crypto to look at where blockchain could be used in other contexts, I just see I just see it having very limited applications. And I've kind of changed my view on that over the years as I've studied blockchain and, and see it used and see it fail to take off. I just think there's very limited utility to the, the technology, but ultimately time will tell. You also point out in your piece uh, the Libra situation with Facebook. Some thought with the community that they had built that uh, that might be the defining, uh, you know, uplift of all yeah. of this. That didn't happen. And then, of course, El Salvador was beginning to use it. That has been a failure as well. What do those two examples say to us? Well, they say a lot of things. You know, with the Libra example, you know, Facebook tried to launch their own cryptocurrency in uh, 2019. And that was really the first time that a lot of policymakers stood up and took notice, right? Because you weren't just talking about, you know, some piece of, you know, software that this dispersed group of, you know, developers put out in the world, right? These aren't, you know, a couple of dudes in their you know, parents' garage, right? I mean, this is one of the biggest, most powerful companies in the world. And Facebook has, you know, over 2 billion active monthly users. I mean, so you could really imagine if they were able to actually launch this cryptocurrency that it would have taken off quite quickly because they had the reach, the scale, the talent to make it so. And, you know, and Facebook said when they did this that they wanted to make sending money as easy as sending a text message. And so their plan was to integrate Libra into their suite of products like WhatsApp, like Messenger, Facebook Messenger, right? And it would become sort of like a native currency to the the Facebook platform. And so policymakers really, you know, cried bloody murder, organized, you know, multiple hearings, you know, put out, you know, various statements, you know, all the regulators were you know, starting to scrutinize this. And in essence, the, the you know, the heat got too hot for Facebook uh, and, and they backed away from the project. And they backed away after many of their partners had already abandoned the project because, you know, uh, Facebook was saying, well, listen, this is not just us doing this, right? We've assembled this, you know, coalition of other companies who are part of the, the Libra Association. And these are pretty big name companies too. I mean, it was... I think Spotify was a was a member, uh, Visa, Mastercard, Uber. You know, but eventually the political pressure was too much for them, and they and they dropped out. You know, and I'm sure the the dream is not dead. Certainly at at Facebook, and I guarantee you that 
Google and Amazon were watching and learning from Facebook's mistakes. So it wouldn't surprise me if you saw some big tech company try to launch their own cryptocurrency, right? Because, again, getting back to the analogy of the state, you know, Facebook itself and Mark Zuckerberg himself have have talked about their company in terms of it of it being a new form of kind of digital state, right? A, a, the a meta, digital, yeah, the metaverse. Yes, well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what they want to be now is the yeah. is the meta is the metaverse, and of course, well, the metaverse needs its own currency, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess. So you know, so you know, so that's the so that's the the logic there. You know, the El Salvador situation is a bit different, and it's pretty tragic. You know, they said that they were going to make Bitcoin legal tender, and they did. So they uh, made that announcement, I think, in 2021. And it's really been um, an abject failure there. I mean, one, the timing has been horrendous. I mean, they, you know, they bought high, and now it's, uh, and now it's quite, quite low. But, you know, it just hasn't taken off, and it hasn't taken off for all the reasons we've talked about. You know, just think of it if you're a merchant. Why would you want to accept payment in something that could go down by 20% in a day, right? Mm-hmm. And, and similarly, if you had Bitcoin, why would you want to spend it if it could go up by 20% in a day? So it's just far too volatile. Um, you know, the country had already made the dollar, U.S. dollar, a legal tender in 2001, and the dollar works well enough for, for most people there. And so it just really hasn't, taken off. Uh, you know, it's cost the El Salvador Treasury a tremendous amount of money. You've seen the credit rating agencies, um, you know, threaten to downgrade the sovereign credit of El Salvador in part because of their embrace of Bitcoin as legal tender. The IMF has threatened to cut off funding there. So it's, it's really a, a tragic case. And, you know, one that I think it's slowed momentum uh, that had been building for around other countries perhaps adopting crypto as uh, as legal tender, but again, an entirely predictable outcome because, as I said before, crypto is not a medium of exchange, nor will it ever be. I mean, you say very conclusively, I think, in the piece, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have yet to meaningfully challenge fiat currency in fulfilling the functions of money. And I really recommend this piece because it's really good. Cryptocurrency and the state and unholy alliance. In closing, just two quick things. Will we see the SEC and other uh, agencies starting to get into this more, uh, particularly in the wake of what happened with uh, FTX? Yes, we will. We already are. You know, unfortunately, cryptocurrency falls into a bit of a regulatory gray area here in the U.S. And, you know, I don't want to bore, you know, listeners, but, um, you know, the U.S. is a very fragmented financial regulatory system. No one would design the system we have from scratch. <laughs> it's, a, it's a byproduct of historical accident and a political accident. And I think the classic example is the fact that the U.S. is one of the few countries in the world that has a separate securities regulator from a derivatives regulator. Mm-hmm. Most folks have heard, most folks have heard of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Of course, they oversee um, securities markets here in the U.S. But we have another agency that's less well known called the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, and they're responsible for overseeing derivatives markets, especially commodity derivatives markets. And so, you know, we've been having these endless debates at the federal level around cryptocurrency in terms of. Is it a security? Is it a commodity? Which agency has oversight? And, you know, of course, politicians are, are involved in that, 
debate as well. And so I, I think that kind of confusion has really hindered an effective policy response to the emergence of cryptocurrency. But in the wake of the FTX implosion, I think that is certainly changing. Regulators are feeling empowered. Certainly the SEC is feeling empowered. And I think you're going to see more and more enforcement actions by the SEC to try to, you know, force these cryptocurrency issuers and the exchanges that cryptocurrency is trading on to come into the SEC, be registered, comply with, you know, all the various regulatory requirements that come with being a securities issuer and a securities exchange and really provide, you know, just basic customer protections that are sorely needed because really when you trade on these cryptocurrency exchanges, you know, you are a, a small fish amongst uh, sharks and there is nothing protecting you. And so we, <laughs> we, 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 we desperately need some more stringent regulation around these platforms because consumers are being harmed every day. Okay, in closing, I saw you uh, online a piece uh, from CNBC that they archived on YouTube, and it was you and Anthony Scaramucci, I think back in November 2022. And uh, he was saying, well, you know, look at AOL in 1998, and uh, this is, uh, you know, what you're going to be eating crow about, or he's going to be eating steak about because you've got some yeah. kind of uh, bet. I mean, you don't worry about that, do you, that you are really uh, – uh, harboring some, you know, kind of old thoughts, old school thinking as it comes to this currency. <laughs> no, I, I don't lose any sleep over that at all. I mean, you know, listen, uh, uh, cryptocurrency is made for strange bedfellows. I never thought I'd be uh, a regular on CNBC with Anthony Scaramucci, but, you know, here here I stand. And, you know, obviously I think he's wrong. I've, I've told him that he's wrong on national TV. And, you know, I have no, you know, skin in the game. You know, if if crypto goes up, you know, if Bitcoin goes to a million, you know, great. It, it doesn't mean anything to me. I, you know, I'm not wishing for people to to lose money. And if crypto goes to to zero, you know, that's that makes no difference to me either. Now, in Anthony Scaramucci's case, and a lot of people like him, it's not just him. I don't want to single him out. You know, because when you turn on CNBC, you know, they have people coming on every single day talking about cryptocurrency and how revolutionary it is and how great it is. And they have the prices displaying, you know, on the ticker on the bottom of the screen, you know, which is all legitimizing it. And it's legitimizing it in a way that it doesn't deserve to be legitimized. And, you know, these people are all talking their book, as we say in finance. They have skin in the game. You know, Anthony has invested in cryptocurrency. He was very close with Sam Bankman-Fried. And I think it's important for, you know, anyone who's listening to someone, you know, talk about any asset you know, cryptocurrency or not, to understand, you know, what are the motivations of the person talking about it and explaining why they think it's going to go up. Now, of course, if you're invested in something, you know, you're never going to acknowledge that it's, it's you know, it's going to go down or it's not not uh, not legitimate. But um, but I'm feeling pretty confident. You know, that was, of course, pre-FTX. So I'm feeling in the state <laughs> of my best with, uh, with the mooch. Okay. Lee Reiner's policy director of the Duke Financial Economic Center and a lecturing fellow. I thank you so much for coming by and helping us to understand uh, this uh, complex uh, set of uh, terms and uh, new approaches to currency. I thank you so much for being with us here on America Trends. Thank you, Larry. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.